I mean, it's season about him deprogramming from his cult by learning about the outside world. And forming connections outside of it. Hello and welcome to Unramblings. I'm Faithix. And I'm Charlene. This week we'll be talking about The Mandalorian Season 2. We have already done an episode on Season 1. We did it almost a year ago, so you can scroll back in our feed and find that one. We'll also link to it if you're watching us on YouTube. We will obviously be spoiling all of both seasons of The Mandalorian. Uh, If we have any other spoilers or content warnings, we'll drop those in right here. Hello! We, unsurprisingly, talk about a decent number of the other Star Wars properties. Uh, I know Rogue One and several of the main canon films came up in this conversation. We don't go into huge depth, but there's definitely some spoilers in there. I think otherwise we're pretty clear on things. Yeah, and I don't think we really have any content warnings either. Okay, back to the past. Welcome back. Okay, and now Charlene will do a brief summary of the work. I will. You sure? Doesn't sound right. I mean, as far as the plot synopsis goes for the season two, it's hard in terms mentally because I'm probably just going to want to follow on from season one, but basically the Mandalorian continues to try and unite the baby who looks like Yoda but isn't Yoda with his people who are the Jedi and over the course of that encounters one of the only remaining people trained by Jedi which is Ahsoka who was able to tell him the baby's name which is Grogu and how to get Grogu to call out for a Jedi master in the force which he does and then right after calling out through the force Grogu is kidnapped by Moff Gideon again And then they all, by they, I mean the Mandalorian and Ahsoka and Bo-Katan and basically all of his allies from both seasons go and storm the ship to get him back and Luke shows up and saves the day. And I think that's pretty much what happens. I mean, Luke also takes Grogu away to presumably train him to be a Jedi. And that's uh, what happens. And lots of other things, but we'll really get into that more because... Well, yeah, but you said plot synopsis. Like, that's the plot. He continues trying to find him, his people, which is the Jedi. Um, There are subplots. Yes, we will get into all the little weird side shoots a little bit and how that works within the series. But I think we'll get into it first with talking about sort of the rules that people decide to follow in the show. Yes, in reflecting on the full season and the cumulative two seasons that is the theme that kind of emerged for me the most particularly after season two is that so many things are decided and determined by sort of ideologies and rules that different characters ascribe to and subscribe to and then a lot of other important things that happen are the result of or result in challenging those ideologies and rules It's a huge theme that kind of runs through both seasons. Yeah. I mean, there's a fairly big one that we can get into a bit more in a moment, but there's things like um, the way Bo-Katan views the dark saber. Right. Uh, Like this grants you the right to the throne of Mandalore. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to win it in combat. You can't just take it from someone. These are rules that lead her to a point where she feels, I don't know, I don't know, powerless is the right word, but there's nothing she can do about it in the end situation because of what is ultimately sort of an arbitrary rule. I feel like this would be a great moment to say we are viewing this all from what we're told within the series 
So information that comes from the old extended universe that's no longer canon or from external sources like the Rebels or Clone Wars animated series. We're just going with what they tell you in The Mandalorian as it seems that this is supposed to be able to be consumed as a standalone piece. Right. One of the more interesting things about that is that whole situation with the Darksaber is that earlier on when Bo-Katan meets our main Mandalorian, Din Djarin, she realizes he's part of a isolated sect of Mandalorians who follow a very strict set of behavioral guidelines. And those involve never taking your helmet off and never showing your face to another person. And she views that as, like, you're in a cult. These are arbitrary rules. That are, they're stupid. You, we can take our helmets off. What are you even doing? I'm not not a real Mandalorian because I do take my helmet off. This is my family's armor. I was born on Mandalore, blah, blah, blah. Like, you can't take that legitimacy away from me because it doesn't fit within what you think of as a Mandalorian. But then on the other end of the season, she's on the other side of that because he doesn't understand why won't you just take the Darksaber? I don't want it. I don't care about this. You do care about this a lot. It's kind of been running your life for a while getting this Darksaber to go back to Mandalore and reclaim and reunite it. And you won't do it because of some, to my mind, arbitrary rules that yeah. say, I can't give it to you? No, I, just take it. <laughs> I love the like attempt to get around the rules of just like, okay, well, that seems dumb. You have to win it from me? Okay. I concede. <laughs> yeah. I yield. Here you go. Like. That's that's not how this works, clearly. But it's like, consider nice try. me, consider me defeated. Like, um, you win, I forfeit. How does this work? Yeah, but um, but she's viewing it much more strictly, much the way he did with the helmet thing up until this moment. But he's come through the other side of having that belief system challenged and deciding other things are more important than those dogmatic beliefs and that dogmatic adherence to like those behavioral like strictures. And she hasn't had her belief system challenged in a similar way. Maybe this is that moment for her. Maybe it will be challenged in that way. And she'll realize, okay, maybe it is more important that someone who wants to and is prepared for leadership take the Darksaber from someone who has no interest or preparation for it. Yeah. And then you see other people sort of breaking codes throughout the show as well. Like that's maintained as a theme. I'm not sure it's set up as well with Cara Dune as it needs to be. She sort of begrudgingly becomes an agent of the New Republic and is like, there are rules, I have to follow these, and then breaks them twice. <laughs> yeah, but she's already established as more of a character who follows rules when they make sense and when she believes in them and when they don't seem to really... Like, when the situation that the rule is for is no longer really in service of what the rule is about... Yeah, she's a lot more comfortable breaking it, which is what happens with the situation you're referring to, where she decides to release the New Republic prisoner who has helped them get the location of Moff Gideon's ship. From well, even the, before from that, the Imperial base. Even before that, when um, the Mandalorian goes to her to be like, "Hey, I need to find this guy," she's like, "Well, I can't. I can't right, just right, look right. that information up for you. There's rules. Works for the kid. Oh, okay. Well, let me look that up for you." <laughs> yeah. And I think that's probably this a part of. The Mandalorian's journey to being like, okay, how important are these rules? Because he's seeing someone who is going, no, these are rules, they're important, up to a point. Yeah. There's a point at which this stops making sense. Yeah. And that's clearly the direction he's headed in. 
And it sort of raises this general question of like, what do these rules mean and questioning those things that you've assumed? Yeah, I mean, and that's ultimately the function of rules is to be a heuristic for most situations, but by their very nature, heuristics don't cover every eventuality. They can't. You And you run into a whole lot of problems when you dogmatically apply a rule regardless of circumstances. There will always be a situation where the rule is counterproductive to what it was made for or counterproductive to achieving a higher purpose than the rule was meant to address. Yeah, which brings us to the phrase that I thought it was really weird when people kept quoting it after season one of this is the way. And I don't know, I could quite put my finger on why it felt weird to me, but it was being used an awful lot. And I think when it comes down to it, it's that they were using it in such a positive light in the real world. And I think it's not a positive thing in the show. Yeah, well, ultimately the phrase, this is the way, particularly the way we see it used in the show and among the Mandalorian Enclave is as a way to shut down critical thought and streamline decision-making aligned with predetermined options that that Enclave has already approved of. So it is, again, it's one of those things where like, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of circumstances in which it is generally a good thing to adopt and take care of the abandoned younglings, foundlings. And it's also like you should take them to their people or you're responsible for them. Like that is a rule that makes sense. And it's one that makes sense in pretty much all circumstances, but there's going to be some situations where it's going to be more difficult or it might conflict with another priority, like not risking the secrecy of the enclave. But I think the thing where it really comes up is like, no, 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 this is a thing that's being deployed to squash critical thought is with the helmet prescription, with the not showing your face, because that is something we don't really understand why that is a rule that this group, does and it might be because they take in foundlings and they take in foundlings from all species maybe maybe it's something to prevent discrimination who knows i don't know but in any case there are certain situations where depending on your hierarchy of values it might be a truer expression of your creed if you're thinking critically to take off the helmet and let someone see your face yeah and i think that it's questioned in season one at one point and It's the armorer's response is, this is the way. Right. And in hindsight, the death of, I think, most of that enclave at the end of season one is shown as tragic, Mm -hmm. but also paves the way for him to have some more critical thought, because when he has doubts, he can't just go and have them squashed. Yeah, there's not an armorer who can go and just reassure him that he is following the right path and the right set of rules. I have doubts. It's fine. This is the way. (laughs) Yeah, but from a voice of authority that he trusts and that he's been trained to respect and defer to. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's very much the sort of tradition thing that we see in the real world culture of Mm -hmm. why do we do it this way? Well, we've always done it this way. Right. The other side of this is the way is that's not done. Right. Yeah, very much so. You made... uh, parenting analogy to it the other day as well oh right yes this is the way is basically because i said so it's just because our creed our organization our cult says so yeah it's the pat response you give when you don't want to give a more critical and thoughtful answer to the specific situation at hand because that requires effort and work and justification on your part and who wants to do that every single time anyone has a question no matter how important why have i got to wear this helmet all the time 
Because I said so. Yep. So it's interesting that like season one does set it up as such a dogmatic thing and in such a positive light because that's the angle that we get at get it from for the whole season. Mm-hmm. And then it's such a departure in this one where he's alone from the beginning and all the connections that he has are outside of that. And a lot of them are very clearly set up strongly to make him question these things. Right, like Bo-Katan and like the imper- the ex-imperial officer who has himself thrown off a dogmatic screed that he was living under. Yeah, well, there's... I mean, just to look at the sacred rights that he gives to the armor and the helmet, mm-hmm. like, we end up with three other characters who are wearing this armor for different reasons that I think are all very justifiable under the idea of the Mandalorian Creed, but not under the letter of it. Particularly not under the letter of the one he was particularly raised under, which does seem to be like a splinter sect, an isolationist faction. Yeah. I thought the scene where bo is like, oh, he's one of those extremists. Right. Was very telling, especially in our current day. Mm-hmm. But you get the marshal who's picked up Fett's old armor. Mm-hmm. And the Mandalorian armor under the Creed is this symbol of something. And it's become a symbol for the marshal. He wore it to liberate his town. And now his town associates that armor with his power and his liberation. And safety. And I think that's yeah. really, it makes them feel protected and safe in a way that they didn't before. And I mean, that's the first episode that we come into. And he's immediately got that set up as a challenge. Now with that one, he does reclaim the armor, mm-hmm. but he does have to trade for it. He doesn't just take it. Mm-hmm. And he does seem to have cares for the situation. His original reaction might be, you have no right, that's mine. But it mm-hmm. does go further than that. And he builds that connection and that empathy. If he were to show up again in a later season, I wouldn't be surprised because the character has been established in that way. The interesting thing about that situation as well is then it places Din Djarin, the extremist Mandalorian who has these like very religious views about Mandalorian armor, then being in the position of, in some ways, holding on to armor that can very strongly be argued to not be rightfully his or not to rightfully belong to the community he represents because it's Boba Fett's armor and it was Boba Fett's like lineage's armor and Bo-Katan then like put cast shade on that because he's a clone but also like no the person who raised him wore that armor and it belonged to generations before him so yeah you know at that point it's like well it belonged to the man who raised me and everyone before him in our family how are you saying that you have a better claim because your religion says so? Yeah, and I think that it's an excellent foil to the martial side of it because with Boba Fett, none of it is to do with the ideal. Like, Boba Fett is a bounty hunter who has strong ties to the crime underworld. There's not a lot of honor as such in his narrative that I'm aware of. By any means, is sort of his thing. And his armor is sort of a symbol of his power but more so his identity, because it does come from his lineage. Well, it's the only connection he has to any sort of biological family, because he's a clone, and the only person he was ever related to was his father. So there's no other family connection that he has, as you say. It's so much his identity. But for one person, it's like, well, should this person be allowed to wear the armor when it's a symbol of the good that they do that goes alongside the creed? 
should this person be allowed it who has the lineage and the identity and the claim to it that way, but isn't using it for what I assume the Mandalorian Creed would classify as a good reason. Like, Boba Fett has a strong moral code of kinds, like the debt to be paid sort of situation, but it's much more of a mob sort of morality. Yeah. Well, you uh, you helped me out of that bind, so I guess I'm going to kill some people for you now. Is that cool? Yeah, I mean, and it's very much a like Wild West type of code, which again, we talked about this in, the, in our episode on the first season. There are so many parallels. This is a space Western, and you see a lot of those same kinds of threads about the nature of ethics and values and how you make those decisions and how you classify issues like that. And then, as Sam is pointing out, like there are a lot of good but different reasons that people are wearing the armor. And like then that follows on with Bo-Katan as well. Yeah. With Bo-Katan, it's weird because for her, it's not an identity, but it's also not a creed. It's a culture. It's her race. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a third side of that triangle that Din Djarin is in the middle of. Right. In some ways, and I know I've said this on other episodes, I think about different things, but in some ways it reminds me of the various ways people will claim Jewish identity. There are a lot of different ways to consider yourself part of that identity and part of that heritage or part of that community or part of that religion. And, you know, other people just don't really get to decide that for you. Sam is saying, uh, my culture is not a costume, Bo-Katan. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. For her, it's a cultural thing, but it's not necessarily like a religious dogma in the same yeah. way that it is for Din Djarin. But setting up those three characters to all have such disparate reasons for doing it, and then it puts Din Djarin in the situation where he's sitting there going, well, is this the way or is this my way? And is there a right way? Yeah. Is this just a way and the way that I was raised, but not necessarily the be all and end all of ways? You know, maybe there's some flexibility here. Maybe I just believe this because I've never been exposed to any other contradicting ideas and that's true of a lot of very dogmatic and isolated groups like this because a lot of the time maintaining that ideology and those perspectives can't survive sustained and like genuine connection and interaction with people who see things differently and live differently yeah i mean it's season about him deprogramming from his cult by learning about the outside world and forming connections outside of it He has to partner with a lot of different people from very different experiences and backgrounds because he has someone else to take care of and he can't afford to only live by that one very specific set of rules. And so he has to be able to be a little bit more flexible and learn more about other people and what they think of his way, which invokes some challenge to it. Yeah, like having been within that enclave for so long... And like we're shown at the start of season one, he he goes out, does his job, goes back. He's not exactly chatty with, um, I can't remember the character's name. I just think of him as Carl Weathers whenever <laughs> yes. I see him. Carl Weathers tries to strike up banter with him and he's like, no. Yeah. No, Eventually they do warm up, but that's because, again, he has to form a more diverse support system before, as far as the outside world is considered, he was very independent of needing them in any way because he got all of his support from the Enclave. And it was just basically he went and he did his job and he brought any Beskar he got back to the cult, you know? But when they were no longer there to support and continue to sort of 
refresh his allegiance to those beliefs and those behaviors, he had to rely on and deepen his network of connections outside of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's season two before you see him do more than just sort of tolerate Cole Weathers. Mm -hmm. But we see him going back to the same people because they're the people he can go back to now. And he like he needs his ship repaired. He goes to that same woman on Tatooine who he knows he can also get childcare from, you know, and like these are the kinds of things that create your support system. And that does start to influence your worldview. You know, the people you talk to, the people you spend time with, the people you rely on and can go to for help when you need it. And that kind of raises a couple of other things within the story. I mean, it leaves this sort of question for what will come in season three and beyond with whether he can go back to that enclave if there is any part of it remaining or some other sect of it, as Bo-Katan seems to be aware of them. Presumably there was more than just the one group. Or has he, by taking his helmet off and being seen by anyone else, is that him giving up his creed and giving up his ability to re-enter that sect? Yeah, that is a question that I was left with at the end. Like, how big of a step is that at the end for him? Particularly at the end when he shows his face just willingly to everyone because he turns back around. But even earlier than that... When does he, he? I think so. Does he turn around? I don't think he does. That's one of the questions I had is that... I think we'd have to watch that again. But point being, like, even before the end when he takes off his helmet, when he's in a bridge full of other people, but before that when he takes off his helmet to impersonate an imperial officer at that base with that other guy who then blows up the imperial base mayfield 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 sees his face and leaves he says hey i never saw nothing you know he's trying to give dinjar in that kind of plausible deniability of like you can tell your enclave no one has seen your face it's cool i won't tell anyone i won't tell yeah. anybody but in terms of like religious dogma and like the behavior we've seen from dinjar and before at least the person he was in the first season that wouldn't have been enough yeah. If he'd been in a situation where someone had taken off his helmet when he was captured or whatever, and then was like, never mind, I never saw it. No one, I won't say anything. You can tell your enclave, whatever. Like, I don't think he would feel like it hadn't happened. It wouldn't matter what the other person said. He would know yeah. that it had happened. We're not even sure if putting on the stormtrooper helmet instead actually matters that much like is it the face covering or is it the helmet which is the question mayfield asks right yes and he does he asks that on the way in which is another part of that step that i think is built up very well of that sort of deprogramming yeah type thing of like okay well you're taking these leeways here like Mm -hmm. is this something you can how strictly are you abiding to this code and forcing him to face Yes. How strictly am I abiding to this code? Exactly. I think that those were questions he'd never asked because he always had the helmet. He w- was presumably told, never let anyone see you without your helmet. Never take it off in the presence of anyone else ne- for them to see your face. And it doesn't sound like there was any sort of hierarchy of values to any of that as far as whether it was letting someone see your face or having your head uncovered or wearing that specific helmet. Like, no one seems to have broken that down for him. Otherwise, he might have been able to answer those questions. Or he might have been able to at least imply that there was a distinction between those things. But those are all different things. Yeah. So he, and then in the absence of, again, an armorer, as you say, to, like, go back to and ask questions of, only to be told this is the way, probably. He has to try and figure out for himself, well, what, are, what do I think is important as far as these tenets are concerned? What do I think they're for and trying to get me to do? And at this point, I think if he found a replacement for the armorer to go back to and ask those questions, 
the answer, this is the way, or any answers, I don't think would be enough for him at this point. I agree. I think that the series of events and the fact that he doesn't have those people to check in with again over and over, that like authority that he can just have answer it for him means he has to then work out that hierarchy of values I was talking about before about like what's more important, taking care of the foundling and getting him to his people or not letting anyone see my face because he doesn't seem to know that. And so he makes the call and he decides it's the foundling that's more important. I think it's interesting that the very first scene that we get of this season is in the old enclave base and it's Karadin clearing it out of a place where presumably thieves uh, have set up their den and there's rats and such and it's generally a you know hive of very minor scum and villainy and it sort of both shows it as a symbol of this code that's kind of gone now but also shows it kind of having been desecrated there's a lot of sort of money lenders in the temple sort of feel to it yeah it's in some ways i think foreshadowing that the breakdown of the code and the way in his mind as well and in his allegiance to it but i think with some of the allusions there there's a question of whether that's being framed as a good thing or a bad thing from that scene what do you mean how is it framed as a good thing that the enclave is desecrated from the fact that the rest of the season seems to be suggesting that he's moving in the right way by moving away from this when you've got all of those characters who are making him question that. I don't know. I still wouldn't say that that initial tableau kind of sets that up, though. I think it might set up, like, the decay of that dogmatic structure in his mind and in his life, but not necessarily that that's a good thing. Yeah, okay. I guess I was thinking more that the season sets it up as a good thing, but that opening scene has much more in the way of allusion to bad things. Well, certainly painful. Like, to me, that's what that scene was. It's very painful Mm. because that's the bodies of everyone that he was around and cared about and the other people who had a similar lived experience to him and it's evidence of a persecution of his people because of him and that's pretty horrible and pretty painful i don't think you see the bodies in that scene i think that's at well the end you of season see the one. armor but it's like yeah. i think that there are things set up to remind you that people were in those suits before yeah that there were people and they're dead now and it is because of him sort of kind of because of their association that they became targeted yeah, that's fair. I think the other thing with the way the show goes is the way that it shows how these codes and rules can end up getting weaponized. Yes. Moff Gideon? Yes. Yeah. In particular. It comes up a little bit where people sort of assume that they know what he'll do because they're like, ah, the code of the Mandalorians. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting because a lot of them seem to assume that the code of this weird cult sect is the code full stop. Yeah. Which I found confusing as well. Like, once you meet Bo-Katan and she's like, oh, you're one of those, like, extremists who never takes off their helmet, then it seems weird that everyone seems to, quote-unquote, know that Din Djarin won't take off his helmet and asks him things like, is it true you never take off your helmet and blah, 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 blah. But it might just be that he's, like, out in the sticks of the galaxy for so much of it, and once you get onto the other side of the galaxy or the center of the galaxy, everyone's like, oh, yeah, no, Mandalorians, they're perfectly normal people, they just go around in jetpacks um yeah it's possible that the extremists are more numerous or at least more out in the world as bounty hunters or whatever but i don't know it, it does seem like a little bit of a contradiction that everyone seems to make that assumption and it's clearly yeah. not a thing that makes sense for people to assume but anyway yeah it kind of begs some questions about whether they knew what direction they were going to go with season two when they finished season one but sure but it certainly shows moff gideon's like 
knowledge of all the different parts of the culture being very powerful and you've got Din Djarin there who has such limited knowledge because of the way he was raised because yeah. Moff Gideon like is aware of what Din Djarin will and won't do mm-hmm. but is also aware that Bo-Katan can't take the dark saber and yeah and mocks her for it in what is part of a series of people mocking people who could very much kill them yeah and- well and it's following on but even more toxic version of the mocking other people had done of Denjarin about the helmet particularly when they thought they had him like subdued in some way threatening to take off his helmet and things like that i think and i i might be wrong about this because i haven't checked but moff gideon might have been the moff in charge of the system of mandalore under the empire and that would make sense for him to have a better understanding of the nuances of the culture and different groups and their different belief systems and practices because the under the imperial system, they had eight giant sectors that were run by a grand moff, and then there were you know moffs under the grand moffs. That's how they're able to effectively administer like all of that space. So mm. I would assume that maybe he took the dark saber as part of trying to be a legitimate leader for Mandalore when the Empire took it. Again, I'm extrapolating because. I know that that's the organizational structure of the Empire, but I don't remember if he was the one in charge. But it would make sense if he was. Yeah. That must be it. It would be really weird if it wasn't that. So as but being he... as a good governor, basically, it would have been his responsibility to be up on that shit. Yeah. That's good, fair. quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> as a powerful governor? Yeah. Well, there's, a, there's an interesting film theory video about you know how the empire is not that bad as far as a system of government obviously not as far as humanitarianism or human exceptionalism which they don't cover in that video which in my understanding of like the now no longer canon expanded universe legends whatever that was a really big problem with the empire is that they were human exceptionalist and basically like white supremacists except for humans so that's the bigger issue with why they're evil. But anyway. Which they're going to end up having to cover in the series if they're going to If they're going to bring Thrawn in, they're going to have to get into that. And that's good because I think it helps to open up a larger conversation. But that's a totally different conversation. Anyway, the video about why the Empire wasn't maybe that bad, at least in terms of administrative effectiveness to the Old Republic and the New Republic, is pretty interesting. And that breaks down like the administrative breakdown of the empire into like the sec- the systems with the grand moths and the moths. So uh, we'll probably link that in the show notes. Yeah. So I think the other thing here, we talked a little bit in our pre-ramble about the size of the planned universe that Disney is building TV series for. Yeah. And how um, somewhat overwhelming it is. <laughs> yes. We, we talk mo- a lot more about the Mandalorian in our pre-ramble for this episode than we normally do. So if you're interested in that, do go and check it out. But it's interesting that they're doing so much there because of how some of the storytelling works in this series, where Din Djarin is tangential to so many other stories. Yeah. But just sort of keeps on going and doing his thing. Like he'll pass by some major event in Star Wars history and be like, oh, that's nice. I'm going to go this way, though. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a job to do. Yeah. The insertion of things like that, like, it does make the universe feel more lived in, mm-hmm. is I think what I said when we were talking about this before. And I think that it's a really effective way to weave these things together because I've seen a lot of shows try to set up a spinoff series in the body of a successful show 
in a way that's super clunky and just kind of ruins the episode or episodes that they're doing it in and is just irritating and cringy. But this is not one of those situations. Like, they're clearly setting up the Ahsoka series, and they're also, in some ways, clearly encouraging people to go and watch Rebels if they haven't, and Clone Wars, and, you know, the other properties that they already have. And they're clearly setting up the Boba Fett series in the run of this season. But it doesn't feel shoehorned in. It is very much a part of this narrative. And you can appreciate their parts of this narrative without going on and watching Boba Fett and Ahsoka. It's just things that actually give you a sense of what sort of content and what sort of plot those properties will be exploring further. Yeah, I think one of the big things is that for both Ahsoka and Boba Fett and Fennec, the things that take place in this series are all chapters in their lives, but they're not like part of their main quest. Neither of them end the episode that they're in by going, ah, but I must go and do this thing, or like, well, I mean, that's not the best example, but like, what am I trying to say? Like, you don't need to know what happened to them in The Mandalorian for their main storylines. Right. And also, their main storyline is only hinted at. It's not the drive of the episode. They are people who are there, who Mm -hmm. have lives outside of this, but the thing that they're doing here is about the Mandalorian storyline. Yeah. But I think that that's sort of part of the thing is like with Ahsoka, she shows up for one episode and then she's off doing her own series, I guess. But with all of the characters, we leave them alone for a while. And then when we come back, it's very clear that they haven't just been sitting and waiting for the main characters to show back up again. Yeah. Like Kara Din gets invited to become an officer for the New Republic and then when we next see her, she has decided to do that, but it wasn't clear that she would before. Like, there's clearly, in fact, she had initially refused that offer in the episode we see it made. So there's clearly been some stuff that has happened and some reflection on her part in the intervening time. Yeah. The Mandalorian's presence in these people's lives doesn't mean that they drop everything and become part of his crew. Mm-hmm. Like, when he moves on to the next thing, they're like, okay, I've got to get back to my stuff now. And it does, you know, you said it makes the world feel fuller and it makes the characters feel fuller. That they clearly have stuff that we don't need to know about, Mm -hmm. but it is going on. Yeah, I mean, even Boba Fett's armor has, like, its whole life that happened that we just see, like, you know, a couple of intersections with. What were we talking about? We were talking about how the universe feels more lived in because even the side characters seem to, like, have lives going on peripherally, like, in between when the Mandalorian interacts with them and also that the... Mandalorian is similarly kind of occasionally intersecting with larger plots than his plot. So it's, there's these layers of, you know, occasionally intersecting threads. Yeah. The, the tidy it, basket that is the Star Wars universe. <laughs> but it raises some weird problems that are very unique to the Star Wars universe in that it had such an extended universe that was canon and no longer is. Yeah, and that people speculate like, oh, maybe they're going to keep this thread that I already know about and can look at through in exhaustive detail, or maybe they're going to keep part of it and not other parts. And, you know, yeah. but even beyond the now Legion, uh, now legends expanded universe, there's also just the fact that the main movies extend further out into the future of the world than Mandalorian. And so, you know, things, you know, more about the timeline of when other characters are doing different things that it does affect kind of your speculation and what you think is going to happen or 
introduces potential plot holes that you kind of want answered. Like, a lot of people were speculating that Luke would probably end up training Grogu because, well, if you think about five years after the end of Return of the Jedi, which is when Mandalorian is set, aren't that many Jedi active at that point in time. There's there's pretty much Luke and and the Jedi who got portaled to some far-off corner of the galaxy with Thrawn, whose name I don't remember and who Ahsoka's looking for. And he's pretty definitively inaccessible. And there's Ahsoka who has refused to train him. And there's Ahsoka, well, but she doesn't consider herself a Jedi anymore. So yeah, mm. so the, the, the cast of potential masters is very limited, and so that kind of directs the speculation of like either he won't find a master or his ma- and Din Djarin will have to raise him and try and figure out how to raise a child with force powers or it will be one of those very limited number of people and so then of course when Ahsoka is like nope and she's gonna go off and find the other guy then it leaves Luke but then also with them going back and telling stories that take place between the trilogies like with but what happens to these characters in Rogue One right like- and uh, Rise of Skywalker we hear Ahsoka's voice at the end of Rise of Skywalker. So what happened to her? Right. Um, and- but more concerningly, we know in The Last Jedi mm-hmm. that all of the kids at Luke's school ended up dead or Kylo Ren. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, on some level, we assume that Grogu is going to come back to Mandalorian because everybody loves him. Why would you get rid of that character? But at the same time, unless he appears in a different one of the 20 series they're going to make. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if he doesn't, if he goes off and gets trained at the school, based on his general level of development, is there a reason to think he wouldn't still be at the school? Is yeah. that the end of Grogu's story? He leaves the Mandalorian, goes to the school, and is later killed by Kylo Ren. The end. Yeah. And I have seen people say like they are like willing to swallow whatever like stretch there is of showing him escaping that um in something in the future because they want that to happen but it also of course introduces the thing about how is ray the last jedi if grogu is supposed to live for 900 years probably if he's not killed i'm calling it now he's not a jedi he's a mandalorian right Yes, and I and I suspect that that is the direction that's heading. And I, the Super Carlin Brothers video we discussed in the pre-ramble, which is about unanswered questions at the end of season two, one of the things was it one of the things? Oh no, there was a YouTube video I was watching recently. It might not have been that one that was talking about maybe the title is in reference to Grogu. No, was no, no. That, that was the Super Cullen Brothers one because we watched it together and I got mad because I said that in our season one episode. Okay, Go so and check the It tapes. was that episode. I just wanted to check because I, or was that video? I, but yeah, so like that mentions it and we mentioned that in the first one, but in this one it would be like, what? I mentioned it. Okay, it was me. Sorry. <laughs> Faye Fix mentioned it in our first season episode and it was also mentioned in that Super Carlin Brothers video with more evidence with like the Darksaber and things. So yeah, maybe he's not considered a Jedi because he's considered a Mandalorian. But I had a whole who is the Mandalorian you thing. Did. It was there was very a whole good. section oh. of the season one episode about like who is the Mandalorian? Is it Din Djarin or is it Grogu? Except we didn't have the name at that time. So anyway, all credit to Faithix uh, applied. <laughs> Unless um, I'm wrong, in which case the Super Carlin brothers can have it. <laughs> sure. Point being, like, maybe it is because of that. Maybe it's because the, there's a classification difference and he decided to not chime in on that force voice chat thing that was going on at the end of that that movie. But What would his voice sound like? 
I mean, that's, maybe he did. That yeah, yeah, fair point. I guess we just assume it would sound like Yoda, but there's no reason to assume that. Point being that the larger body of other works that extend before and after the timeline of this show informs the speculation and the realistic possibilities of where they're going with different things and introduces potential plot holes that or at least questions it certainly changes how you watch the show i mean at the end of season one we see the dark saber and my reaction seeing the dark saber was huh that's weird it's like a lightsaber but black and then charling came back with news about the extended universe and how that worked in that and it's oh well now i have a much better idea of where this is going to be going and it it's that weird thing of is it a spoiler to know what existed before in a world that may or may not be canon yeah and it's tricky the is it a spoiler or not is an interesting one because i do suspect that a big part of the storytelling is banking on some if not all of the audience having those details to get them excited about things i think that there is an expectation of revealing the dark saber at the beginning to kind of whet the appetite for this plot about the rulership of mandalore yeah, and then you get a lot of weird things like Katie Sackhoff's role was confirmed fairly early on, which was, oh, okay, we're going to meet bo You had the issue where before we watched the last couple of episodes, the last one had aired, and Mark Hamill, of all people, tweeted like, oh yeah, I had to keep my involvement secret when the episode had just dropped. And it's like, okay, so I guess Luke turns up. Yeah, that was pretty annoying. But it's very strange, like, a lot of people try and tell me that it's a fun way to consume media to have the spoilers, and I disagree. They're wrong. It's okay. <laughs> um, You're not wrong. There are different ways of enjoying things. But with this, it does walk a very strange line because it's that there's kind of the mystery to it and figuring it out. Yeah. And, and I, I can kind of see the appeal of that side of things, but I also worry because if I didn't know about the Darksaber, is there enough information in the TV series for me to work that out without knowing it? Well, then they reveal it at the end so that you know if you didn't know. Yeah. I know. It'd be a very different watching experience. Mm -hmm. It's a very odd way to be telling a story. And I think it's fascinating that our last 45 years, sounds about right, has managed to lead to this point where this is a problem that we can have. Like, I don't really have much to say about it beyond, that's weird. Just the not being sure whether or not you're supposed to sort of know about those peripheral things to help you kind of put things together and be excited about it. Yeah. And theorize. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just different ways of appreciating it. And I think that you get a different experience depending on which direction you're coming from. And I think that that's a thing that you see more and more. I mean, it's not that different from watching an adaptation of a book to a, a film. You know, you're going to get a different experience if you've read the book versus if you haven't. But if you're a good storyteller and you know what you're doing, you have to set it up so that it can be a good experience either way. Well, it's interesting you said it because I was actually just thinking, my my brain went, it would be like rebooting Shakespeare's canon after 50 years. And I mean, I guess we kind of do that. You yeah. get the like, what's a 1930s portrayal of Romeo and Juliet like? Mm -hmm. Um and it is a different take on things and how they're going to do things is different. I mm. mean, sometimes it's fairly true to the original script and sometimes it's more disparate. But... And there'll be Easter eggs that you'll only get if you know what's going on and like things that you'll know to look out for if you are familiar with the other work. Which is the case with 
Shakespeare's works originally, it is that mm-hmm. there is an extended universe of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's a right way. It's just like a different experience. And fortunately, I think with the Star Wars universe, they're doing a good job of providing a good storytelling experience and a, a good narrative, whether you are familiar with some of the extended universe legends, larger you know, universe, other films, etc., or not. Yeah. So I think the last thing that we wanted to touch on just before we get into the big question is just how nice it is to see some recognition of the traumas and horrific things that happen in the original series. Like the original trilogy? Yeah. A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi? Yeah. That kind of get moved past. And you're in this position now where we've got this show that's set five years after the Return of the Jedi. And there are people who are living with the consequences of that. So obviously, like, I think Alderaan is given a decent amount of weight in that original trilogy, in that it's definitely shown as a horrific thing. But it is also something that's sort of done, and it's terrible, and then it's kind of moved past. As far as the main movies go, yeah. Yeah. So having Kara Din there as someone whose planet that was, who was a passionate soldier for the Republic Army for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they identify her teardrop tattoo as a sign of a survivor of Alderaan. Mm-hmm. Survivor by absence, I assume. I don't think there were survivors who were on the planet. So. Yeah, I mean, there's that powerful moment of somebody who asks her if she lost anyone when Alderaan was literally destroyed. Like, And she says, I lost everything. Or was it everything or everyone? I don't remember. That was season one. So. Was it season one? I mean, that, yeah, it definitely comes up in season one with that but then she's taunted about it yeah. by an imperial officer that they encounter on moff gideon's ship or was it a moff gideon's ship it's on the transport where they right. get the doctor and like he's very much trying to rub salt in the wounds and also trying to draw an equivalence to the destruction of the death stars which is a difficult one because it's it's a recognition of how much devastation the death star was mm-hmm. i remember it's it's a weird thing to draw from but like there's a scene in How I Met Your Mother mm-hmm. where Lily oh. finds out that the stormtroopers aren't robots and right, is like, that they're people. wait, they killed so many of those people. Yeah, there's apparently, there's a scene in Clerks about it as well, which I mm. haven't seen Clerks, but it's referred to, again, I think in that video about why the Empire is not that bad as far as administration. They're right. kind of pointing out like, even as far as like planet scale atrocities, both sides of that conflict have blood on their hands because there's the destruction of Alderaan, but there's also the destruction of both Death Stars. And there's a clip in Clerks, particularly the obliteration of the second Death Star, which was under construction. The scene in Clerks is pointing out like that was probably covered in like contractors, plumbers, electricians, builders and shit. Like that's not even a military base at that point. Yeah. And that's a planet size, but more than planet size because the whole interior is also base. Where you think of a planet, it's just the surface that's covered with people. You have to think that's similar destruction of, it's just all union workers. <laughs> yeah. You it's, know? It's difficult because the two aren't comparable. And there's a knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, but you you work for the Nazis, then... Mm-hmm. But at the same time, especially with what we learn about characters like Finn and the ex-stormtroopers we meet in rise of skywalker like yeah. a lot of those people aren't there by choice they're they conscripted were... as children 
Yeah, they're child soldiers who have been kept in that position for so long because they don't have an option to leave. Right, and also that's the government administration that exists in those parts of the galaxy for the past 20 years or whatever. Yeah, it's very much implied that, like, the reason that Finn and the other stormtroopers that are able to leave do is because they're lucky enough to be Force-sensitive. So, yeah, I mean, between the fact that some of the people working on the Death Star probably slaves yeah based on what we know about the empire from the extended universe i appreciate the fact that it's brought up on both sides of that yeah again not saying the empire was awesome or anything no like they definitely they have a lot of nazi and and fascist parallels that cannot unramblings uh... takes the strong stance of nazis bad fascists bad yeah but again like that was a whole lot of people. I, I remember it being at a, I think it was at Dragon Con one year, there was a t-shirt that was like, I had friends on that Death Star. Yep. And I mean, it's basically that thing. But so you get that scene of like the framing that both sides of this are having of the other side of like, these are the horrible people who killed millions of good men on our Death Stars, you know, and on the rebel side, you have, these are the horrible people who obliterated an entire planet, which again, terrible. The thing is, is that the guy arguing about the Death Star is doing it from the point of cartoonish villainy. Oh yeah, entirely. Like, he's he's so evil and so stupid. Yeah. Like he he very much manages to talk himself into getting shot. Yep. But it's an interesting foil to the scene with Mayfield. I was just about to say that. Yeah. Talking to the commander, where he's mm-hmm. like, "You're being shown an ex-imperial soldier taking to task." his commanding officer at the time. Mm-hmm. It's the humanizing of some of the people that were behind the helmets. Yeah. And sort of, th- there are terrible people at the top. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the just following orders thing really rings great with me. Yeah. But there's an extent to which some of those orders are non-optional. I don't know. It's an interesting thing, and I'm glad that they're adding some dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I would feel a little bit weird about it if you only got the cartoonish villainy side of the Death Stars thing. Mm-hmm. I think the Mayfield scene adds a lot of nuance to it, regardless of how I feel about Bilbo. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's most of the things we want to talk about. But I think the big question is a little bit of a landmark for us, because this is the first time we're doing something on the second part of something. And I think we're going to take the same question. I believe our big question last time is, what does it mean to be a Mandalorian? And today we're asking, what does it mean to be a Mandalorian with what we know from season two? Yeah, and I think it's a different question for season two than it is for season one. Because from season one, we're only asking that question based on what we've seen of the particular enclave that Din Djarin belongs to. And in season two, we have the context that at least some other groups on Mandalore from Mandalore view that as a as an extremist cult and that their perception of what it is to be a Mandalorian and what the way is is not necessarily representative of everyone who would call themselves a Mandalorian. We in particular get the perspective of Bo-Katan who is from Mandalore and is of a like noble Mandalorian lineage, like a leadership lineage and who views the not taking off of the helmet as a marker of extremism but who also ascribes to a different set of dogmatic beliefs around the Darksaber and the passage of leadership that Din Djarin seems to have never been educated about even as part of the enclave that he grew up in. Do you think that Boba Fett is a Mandalorian? 
I think that that depends on whether or not he considers himself a Mandalorian because he was not raised on Mandalore. He doesn't seem to have much in the way of a connection to the planet, which seems to play a big role in Bo-Katan's identity as a Mandalorian and as part of why the Enclave describe themselves as Mandalorians because that group originated on Mandalore. But he wears Mandalorian armor and seems to at least be identified by other people as a Mandalorian because of the armor, which he again wears because it belonged to his father slash clone donor person who raised him, who's his father, and the lineage that led to him, which were presumably Mandalorians. But it's interesting because we're getting two different definitions of Mandalorian there, because one of them is Bo-Katan's effectively race, culture, planet of origin. Mm -hmm. And the other one is an idea. An ideology, really. Right. It's interesting that someone is like, oh, there's a Mandalorian here, and it's the Marshal, who has presumably never said, hey, I'm a Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. But people see him in the armor and they see him in that role and they go, oh, that's a Mandalorian. Right. They're making a whole bunch of assumptions. Based on the fact that he's there, he has the costume and that he's in that role of protector. Right. Which I know isn't always exactly the role that Mandalorians are in. They're more bounty hunter-y. At least Boba Fett and Din Djarin are bounty hunters. And other certain other members of the enclave are bounty hunters but i don't think there's any evidence that bokatan is a bounty hunter that's true yeah those aren't necessarily in, entangled but it seems like because their planet was overtaken by the empire and they were scattered in a lot of ways that there are a lot more mandalorians who are bounty hunters and it does seem to be a thing that a lot of members of the enclaves do because it's the thing that you can do solitary and be disconnected from society while doing yeah That wasn't an answer, of course. I mean, I think it kind of breaks on the line of like whether it's something that other people perceive you as or whether it's something that you are, that you identify as yourself. And I think that there are some for whom it's one and some for whom it's the other. So do you think at the end of season two, Din Djarin is a Mandalorian? I think it's very unclear because he takes his helmet off at the end and shows his face to Grogu. And he also takes his helmet off. And shows his face to Mayfield and an entire base of soldiers, which then get exploded. But Mayfield is still alive at the end of that and has seen his face. And so it kind of depends on whether or not he still believes himself to be a Mandalorian, whether he still ascribes to the creed he was raised on, and whether his enclave would accept him as one. And I think that could go either way. Like, it's possible that they would still accept him. Maybe there would be a penance. Maybe there would be some sort of consequence or whatever. We don't know. Maybe, they, But maybe they would still accept him back, or maybe they wouldn't. Maybe he would be effectively excommunicated for having done that if they find out. We have no way of knowing that. But then there's also the question of whether or not he wants to be a part of that community anymore. It's possible that by taking off the helmet and by showing his face in either of those situations was him making that choice to no longer live by those rules and those restrictions, in which case he may not consider himself a Mandalorian anymore. Hmm. But he might also be the rightful, have a rightful claim on the throne of Mandalore. Right. Again, which could potentially give him a different way of identifying or claiming to be a Mandalorian, even though he was not born on that planet and he was a foundling by a Mandalorian sect. He may then end up having, as you say, that like 
leadership claim to the planet. So it's it's a very murky thing. And again, well, I, it, it reminds me of like the different types of identity, of like Jewish identities that exist and how those can be for very, very different reasons. Which is the problem that we come down to is that we are given two groups and both of them think the other one isn't really a Mandalorian. Right. Because Bo-Katan is going, well, Din Djarin is some extremist. That's not what Mandalore's about. Mm-hmm. And Din Djarin is going, well, you take your helmet off so you can't be a Mandalorian. Right. And while he might come to question that statement, that means there's a group of people who say we are Mandalorians who mm-hmm. have that problem. Right. And Bo-Katan doesn't think that Boba Fett is a Mandalorian because even though he has the lineage like she does, she doesn't think it counts because he's a clone. Because Bo-Katan might be kind of fucked up. Well, she might be like, it's some sort of ist, you know, it's not racist, but it's like, I don't know, I don't know, whatever, something like birtherism kind of an idea of like, well, if you weren't like biologically, naturally conceived and generated it's in it's the, the who's your human. real dad to your adopted yeah kids, so. right and and so she's drawing that kind of bullshit line in the sand of like oh well you're not a real mandalorian because you were cloned rather than born in a conventional way which is a different kind of prejudice clone phobia chris has supplied in the chat uh yeah and so she has that bias that makes her discount him as you know having a claim to that identity when honestly that claim is built on the same thing she has established her claim, which is the lineage and the, the armor having been in her, her right to wear that armor having been based on it being in her family for generations. Yeah. I wonder if they'll narrow down that the definition in season three. Again, like now Legends, you know, Extended Universe stuff, I know there was some issues with like a lot of clones going crazy. And so, you know, some bias against them for that reason. So, mm. you know, maybe it, it might stem from that. It might be a reflection of a larger in-world prejudice against clones and not considering them real people, which could also be a part of the dehumanizing of clones to justify the, the clone, clone wars, wars you know, yeah. where you've cloned Boba Fett's father, Jango Fett, Fett, millions of times to slaughter indiscriminately and not feel like they are real people, quote unquote. It's not dissimilar to the mental gymnastics we do to justify eating you know live animals and stuff which we definitely do all the time we're telling ourselves it doesn't count in the same way as other living thinking breathing creatures but you know in a way it does yeah (laughs) and certainly with clones they're humans so i guess that the answer is that there isn't a clear answer because it's a disputed identity at this point yeah and i mean it really makes your analogies to jewish identities more accurate i guess you're more of an expert on that than i am but well again i'm not Jewish, don't have any claim to a Jewish identity. I've just worked for a Jewish nonprofit for a while. And so I learned a little bit more about it and had lots of friends growing up who were Jewish. I make no claim to that identity or anything. But I just know from conversations with people in that community that there are a lot of different ways to be Jewish or be connected to the community or be affiliated with it in some way and have some part of that identity. And there is sometimes some shade cast at people who claim the identity for different reasons or who belong to different denominations or are more culturally than religious Jews or what have you. So for some people, it is a subject of debate and other people take a more inclusive approach to it. And I think that we're seeing kind of a similar breakdown with the presentation of different ways of claiming that identity in the Star Wars universe as far as Mandalorian. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it expands in season three as I 
feel it's extremely likely that we're going to see Din Djarin sit on the Mandalorian throne. Hmm. And that that might have some interesting ramifications. And I think it might be a lot like the uh, whole Kennedy being president when he's Catholic thing. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, this is... Yeah. What's he going to do? Is he going to institute all of the extremist rules? Are we going to have to crusade through the galaxy for Beskar? <laughs> like to reclaim the, all the Beskar stolen by the Empire? Yeah. Because I don't know if that's as much of a priority for your everyday displaced Mandalorian citizen. Well, we have to eat by ourselves in a room on our own, like, because <laughs> we can't take these helmets off. I think. Take away your ability to look at your loved ones' faces. Um, They're coming for your faces. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, it could be a big political issue <laughs> in the third season. We don't know. I do want to point out one of the things with like the succession and the Darksaber, though, because it was pointed out, again, in one of the videos we watched, I think it might have been the same one, the same Super Carlin Brothers one we referred to before, that was like the Bo-Katan thing. It's a little confusing because within the leadership, it seems like you can pass the Darksaber down. Yeah. So, like, why won't she accept it from Din Djarin? Maybe it's because it would mean recognizing him as a Mandalorian. Maybe. Um, um, it's, anyway, anyway, questions for another time. That's a tangent we don't have to go down anyway. Last time we talked about Grogu as the Mandalorian. Yeah. And that's obviously got a bit of a question mark hanging over it with him being taken by Luke. Right. But, I mean, there's certainly some formative years there. I think that... We've reached a point in the show where we once again have to question the title, though, because mm-hmm. it's The Mandalorian, yeah. not The Mandalorians. Mm-hmm. It's still a story about this one guy. It's not about a Mandalorian. It's about mm-hmm. The Mandalorian. Am I reading too much into a title? Well, if you're upset about that, you came to the wrong podcast. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons that I think it's probably going to have him sit on this throne. And I think he's probably going to be put into a position of moderating some of the extremist ends that the Mandalorians seem to have reached on both sides, Hmm. potentially. I don't know. One thing you can say is that the Mandalorian is not a reference to the title of the person who sits on the throne of Mandalore, because that is a, that is the manned hyphen, or not hyphen, manned, um, quote mark, Allure, was the leader of Mandalore, so... So the leader of Mandalore is the Mandalore. Yeah. So Mandalore. Well, that's not confusing at yeah, all. Yeah, Mandalore, the planet M A N D A L O R E. Mandalore, the leader M A N D um, apostrophe apostrophe capital A L O R, but all one word, but with an apostrophe in the middle and a capital A in the middle. It's Mandalore, and then Mandalorian, like the people from the planet, or part of the sect, apparently, or that's Mandalorian armor as an adjective, basically. Is the title. Well, I, I don't want to keep going on this for too long as I think we're sort of going into minutiae, but it does beg the question of it, is it to be Mandalorian to be of Mandalore, to follow the Mandalorian code, or to be ruled by the Mandalore? Mm-hmm. But, or to just be descriptive of it, like Mandalorian armor. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I think that's kind of an answer to the big question. Certainly an exploration of the big question. But I think the bigger question is, is it fucked up that Grogo eats the eggs in the first few episodes? Yes, it is. I know that it really bothered you a lot. And like, I was much more willing to tolerate that storyline and saw a lot of value in it as far as depiction of certain developmental issues with a 
child that age and the species diversity in the galaxy. Yeah, you um, see, the thing is that I, I get that. I get that there's so much, like, reasoning why that would be a reasonable thing for him to do. And a, a reasonable problem to have in that kind of universe of, like, you have all these sentient creatures, but a lot of them evolve from creatures that eat each other or eat eggs. But I have... Yeah, egg eating is super common in the animal kingdom. Yeah, but I have two problems with it. One is the reaction to it in the show is for the Mandalorian to sort of be like, no, and then not do anything about it, not tell the person whose eggs they are, not mm-hmm. do anything to stop him beyond saying like, no, you can't do that, which clearly hasn't worked the first five times he does it, so why doesn't he do anything? Anyway, the second issue that I have with it is that it's played for laughs. It's written to be humorous, and it's, oh, ha, 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 isn't it funny? Grogu is eating the eggs, and... Like, no, this is the last of this person's species. It's also their offspring, and you're not even going to tell them this is a problem that's going on. Yeah, Sam in the chat was saying much the same way, that it really disturbed them and that uh, they felt it was written as a joke and didn't find it funny. Yeah. And I definitely see that. I do. And it did kind of rub me the wrong way. It didn't affect me as deeply as it affected you. I think because I was seeing it as more of, like, a interesting developmental and, like, biological anthropology, like, intersection... I don't know, an interesting ecosystem dimension. And so I think I was able to kind of intellectualize and and distance myself from it a little bit more emotionally. Although I did feel very strongly like he should have fucking told her that this was a problem and like explained like he's basically a baby. I'm really sorry. I don't think he really understands. You really need to just be on those at all times. Right. Because I think that she would have taken a lot closer watch on them if she'd known it was a problem. And Playing it for laughs was in poor taste. I agree. Yeah. It could be shown as a problem and a thing that he does realistically, mm-hmm. but portraying him as being a little scamp for doing it, uh, no. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I think in some ways it was buffered also for me, again, that whole ecological perspective or whatever. I know a lot of species that do lay eggs like that and spawn in that way do spawn way more volume than they will or could ever gestate successfully or like reach successful maturity. And at the point that you have sapient life forms, you can take care of them more once some of them have sort of not made it past certain stages. Like a lot of species like that are part of the food chain for their eggs and their tadpoles and stuff to be an important food source in the ecosystem. But yeah, the playing for last thing was pretty fucked up. Yeah, but I also like... Going back to that first point of like, he should have said something. Yes. Is you also get to a point where you're talking about sentient creatures. Yeah. Who can discuss things. And Grogu doesn't have the language ability, but he's not stupid. Mm-hmm. We know that he can communicate. He know We know that he understands what he's being told. Mm-hmm. There's conversations that could and should have been had there. Yeah. Especially like... Given that we're shown later how complex his understanding of things can be with his, like, backstory as provided by Ahsoka. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Okay. I'm not going to harp on this. I'm done. Okay. Do you have any fun facts? Oh, I have a fun fact. Mm-hmm. So the scene where they kill the crate dragon and the sand people are sifting through the guts and hold up that round spherical thing, and it seems like maybe it's an egg because there was the egg in the Jawa scene in season one. The thing is actually a pearl from the crate dragon, and the pearl in a crate dragon is formed around a kyber crystal. And kyber crystals are the things that make lightsabers go, basically. 
and they are what give the lightsaber its color and you know are important in terms of the connection between the Jedi and the lightsaber and the force and stuff so point being in that episode the sand people liberated a kyber crystal from the crate dragon and the ones that are in crate dragon pearls are supposed to be really powerful i think so mm-hmm. uh we might see a lightsaber being made from that kyber crystal at some point maybe for grogu who knows but then there'd have to be an epic fight between that lightsaber and the dark saber so who would be wielding the dark saber for that Maybe Moff Gideon again. He does seem to like steal it. So or Bo-Katan or Din Djarin. That'd be a fun I, twist. I don't think that's gonna no. happen. Uh, there's a upcoming Kyber Crystal fun fact from Chris. Oh right, I did know that, but I forgot. They are semi-sentient. The reason that Sith crystals are red is because they make them bleed. I did know that. I had forgotten about it. They are an important part of the uh, connection with the Force. So yeah. And that also, I think, has to do with why they're different colors. The colors are an indicator of certain, like, alignments and orientations to the Force, I think. Huh. That is a fun fact. I don't have Thanks. a fun fact. Thanks, Chris. I'd totally forgotten about that really interesting thing about kyber crystals. I don't have a fun fact. Uh, I did have a fun fact, but I didn't write it down, and now I've forgotten what it was. So maybe we'll re-record it later and put it in, or maybe we won't. Okay. Uh, any other tangents, late thoughts, anything to follow up on? I think that people who enjoyed these discussions should probably check out some of the YouTube videos that we reference and link in the show notes. They're not our videos. They're just ones that we watched and also enjoyed and in some ways influenced some of this conversation. So, But while you're there, you should probably go and check out our YouTube videos as well. Uh, we Yes. Our most recent one is a Christmas-themed one, but if you want to know more about the adaptation of A Christmas Carol into The Muppets Christmas Carol, it's fascinating. Smooth. Oh, I thought so. Okay. Thank you for listening to our episode. We really appreciate it. If you like what we're doing here, you should definitely check out our Patreon. You can listen along live and chime in with fun facts and questions and general hatred of Danny Rand if you were listening to our pre-ramble. Mm-hmm. You can also get extra bonus episodes that include our bloopers and outtakes, our additional bigger questions that you don't hear here, and also the pre-ramble where we on Danny Rand. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. Well, it's also Yoda didn't seem to chime in on that voice chat. That's true. He was having trouble with Zoom. <laughs> Connection <laughs> As we all are. Uh, anyway. I hate the last year.